If you brought your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll be reading in just a moment in verse 41. Last week we began a study that we're calling Let's Go Be the Church. And if you did not hear or uh, were not here for that particular message, I encourage you to go back and listen to it online because it really lays a foundation for what we're going to do throughout this study. We're calling this morning's Bible study message, Doing Life Together. Doing Life Together. And we're going to be reading verses 41 through 47, but, but I just want to begin with verse 41. Doing Life Together, verse 41 of Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came for the very first time and was broadly, completely, fully poured out on the followers of Jesus Christ. That group of 120 initial Christians in one day became a group of 3,120 Christians. Peter preached a message. Peter just finished his sermon. And in verse 41, it says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So the Holy Spirit came, and the church took on an entirely new dimension. It became more than just a human institution or a human organization. It became something far more remarkable than that. This verse says that those who gladly received his word were baptized, and it's describing what the people were doing. When it says they received his word, it means they heard the gospel, and they made a decision to welcome that gospel into their life, that message that Jesus was the Messiah and that he alone could save them from their sins. And so they received that word, and it was a decision that they made. And right after that decision, there was an act of obedience. It was called baptism. Baptism is that first step of obedience that you and I take to let the whole world know that I am following Jesus Christ. In that day and time, it would be another 250 years before you could find a church structure anywhere on the planet, a Christian church building. And so if you made a profession of faith during that first 250 years, the way you made your profession of faith was you stood in water and said, Jesus is Lord, and they baptized you. That was your profession of faith. And so there was a decision that led to an act of obedience where they were baptized, and that's what the individuals were doing, but the Scripture tells us something else was happening. That's what they were doing as individuals, but God was doing something. And it says in that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, unless you think that I'm, I'm overstating that, if you drop down, I think it's verse 47, it says the Lord added to them their number daily. So we know the added was not something the people were doing. Added is something that God was doing. God added to their number. And so these people who made decisions and took a step of obedience, 
That was their part, but God was doing something. What was God doing? He was adding them to the church. The church is a group of Christians. The church is something that Jesus is building. We studied that last week. Jesus said on this rock, this confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, what does it look like when a church is being built that is busting down the gates of hell? What does that church look like? Well, we have a description here of that church. Have you ever wondered what it looks like when a church is, is exactly where it needs to be? Well, here it is. Now, some people believe they don't need the church. Their relationship with God is private. It's none of your business. It's just between me and God. And, you know, a lot of religions be a Confucianist without other Confucianists. You can practice a lot of different faiths without being part of a particular group when you do it. But Christianity is not like that. You can't be a Christian by yourself. It is personal, but it's never private. Church was God's idea. And the Lord never intended that Christians live in isolation from one another. So why did God do this? Why, did he, he not, why was he not content with a decision and a step of obedience? Why did something else have to happen in their life? Why did they have to be added to a group that became the church? Why did they have to be added to this group? Well, this passage, I'm going to extract this morning at least four reasons why that seems to be on God's heart, that when you become a Christian, you become part of a church. Why you need to do life with a group of believers, number one, because the life of Jesus in you longs to connect with the life of Jesus in other believers. Listen to verse 42, and they continued, all these Christians, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then in verse 46, you see this word continued again. It says, so continuing daily with one accord. They did some other things. I want you to notice that word continued. It means to be strong or to endure in a particular direction. To be entirely consumed with something. If someone is addicted to something, we might use a word like this. They continued with that drug. They continued with that problem. They continued with that video game, whatever the case may be. It means to be obsessed in a particular direction. And the scripture is telling us here that these people inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God are not at home by themselves. They are not at home in the world's community. And there's something in them that's drawing them to this. When they experience this new life, there seems to be a desire for Bible study. It says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, their daily teaching and preaching. There seems to be a desire for fellowship. This is the first use of the word in the New Testament. A desire to share life. Koinonia means to share life, and it means to participate in the same life with other people. And so it's the life of Christ, and they, they desire not only to learn the Bible, but to experience the life of Christ with other people and to share that life, to help you experience that life by what he's doing in me and for me to experience something more of him by seeing what he's doing in you. Koinonia, fellowship. They seem to be longing for eating together. Hallelujah, amen. We know the first Baptist church of Jerusalem liked to eat together. In fact, we're going to do this next Sunday afternoon. We're not going to have 
Our Bible study groups aren't going to meet. We're going to have a worship service at 1030. And right afterwards, we're going to have a fellowship meal around tables. And, um, and so these early Christians, filled with the Spirit of God, they liked hanging out together. Obviously, it wasn't just the food. The eating together in that day and time indicated the most close, the closest kind of relationship, an intimate friendship, and they were eating together. And then it says they were praying together. They continued in prayers. They sought God together. They talked to God together. They talked to God about each other. In terms of intercession, someone has a problem, they, let's pray about that. And they would pray together about that. <clears throat> the problem is, if you become a Christian, you say you become a Christian, and there's no desire to be with other Christians, something is terribly wrong. Some years ago, I've shared this story before, but, but she really illustrates this truth. Her name was Betty. I was in Mississippi. I was staying with my in-laws, my father-in-law. He was a deacon at a church where I was speaking, and so I was speaking at that church, and we got home after one of the services, it was a series of nights, series of teachings. We were both sitting down in armchairs, and we were talking together. We were having fellowship. I love my father-in-law. And we were talking together about some things, and the phone rang. And he goes over and picks up the phone. And he listens for a moment, he talks to this person, I'm not really paying attention, but then he covers up the, the receiver, and he says, Don, this is, this is a sister of a woman who's at church tonight. She's not one of our members, but her sister really wants to talk with you. And I said, like on the phone? He said, no. She wants you to come over to the house and, and, and talk to her. Well, my first response, you know, at the end of a long day, you're sitting down, you've kicked your shoes off, you're sitting in a chair. My first thought was, was to whine a little bit. Not to my father-in-law. I had to look very spiritual to him. <laughs> but, but it was to whine. Oh, tonight? I mean, I've already, I've already discharged. You know, I've, I've done everything I can do today. But then the Holy Spirit began to, to prompt me, said, you got to go. And so I said, sure, George, let's do it. And we got in the car together, and we drove down the road, country road, to this, this woman's house. Walked in, there were two women there, the woman who had called and her sister who had wanted to talk to me. So the four of us sat down in chairs. We were all facing each other. And the lady's name was Betty. Betty, you could tell she had had a hard life. It was all over her face. You could tell. You ever meet somebody, you look at their face, you can tell they've had a hard life? Betty had had a hard life. And so she tells me a little bit of her story, uh, just a little bit. And, and I said, well, Betty, what can we do for you? What do you need? And she said, I need some help on some prescription medications. I, and she was having a trouble with, with her insurance. And it was just a real practical need that sh she was having difficulty with. And I listened to her. And I said, Betty, I, I'm not from here. But I tell you what, George here, my father-in-law, I said, George here is a deacon at that church that you were visiting tonight. And I know that church, and I know this deacon, and, and I want you to know that, that if, if, if they can, they will do everything they can to help you. One way or another, they will help you get what you need. And I looked over at George, and he nodded his head. I said, but Betty, I want you to deal with George about that, but let me ask you a question. Let me talk to you about something else. I said, tell me, tell me about your relationship with Jesus. 
And she said, well, pastor, I, I didn't really grow up in a church, but when I was in high school, some friends took me to church, and, and there, I, I, uh, one night, listening to the pastor, I, I walked down an aisle, and, um, and, uh, and I, I was baptized, and I became part of the church. I said, well, what happened after that? She said, well, after a year or so, I stopped going. I never went back. I said, never went back, No. Have you visited other churches during those years? This was like 30 years ago. Have you visited other churches? No. Have you ever missed going to church? She said, no. I said, babe, tell me what happened when you were a teenager and you walked the aisle and did all that. She said, you know, I really don't remember. I said, did you pray with the pastor? She says, I think so. I said, Betty, let me me tell you something. I said, I just got to be real honest with you. I said, for someone to say that they're Christian and have no interest in being with other Christians, something is terribly wrong. I said, because when you, when you put your trust in Jesus to save you from your sins, the Bible says that he comes inside you through his Holy Spirit to change you from the inside out. And one of the things he does is he puts in you a desire to be with other Christians like you. And I, and I said, so, so all these years, you, you were shared with me. You have had no desire. Do you really think that you came to know Jesus when you were a teenager? She said, no, Pastor. I said, would you like to know him now? She said, yes. And so I shared the gospel with her, and, and she, she got it. She understood this message of the cross. She, she understood Jesus died for her sins, that he was alive and that he wanted to forgive her, and he wanted to be her Lord, and to come live inside her and change her from the inside out. Betty prayed that night. And I tell you what, she became a new person. She didn't miss church when church was gathering. She, she enjoyed her Bible study fellowship. She enjoyed her getting together with other Christians. Every opportunity she had, she was a different person. In the New Testament, Christians were not forced or berated into attending church. I know know we can fall into that, all of us, including your pastor. We can all fall into this saying, hey, we ought to be at church. We ought to attend church. But the issue is not our attendance. In this passage of Scripture, the issue is our heart. What is in my heart? I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about whether you come to church or don't come to church. I'm asking you, what's in your heart? Is the life of Jesus in you longing to be with other people in whom the life of Jesus lives? Henry Blackaby writes, Those who choose to stand aloof or refuse to be involved in a church have a serious heart problem. A Christian cannot stand outside the church, mock it, laugh at it, or call it a hypocrite. It runs against every fiber of faith. Christians love the church and would give their lives for it. In fact, 1 John 2.19 says that those who leave the church and never return were not really saved in the first place. They went out from us, but they were not of us, John writes. So life seeks out life. When Jesus is at work in a person, one of the very first things that happened, this is the first mark, is that I want to be where life as well. 1 John 3.14 says this, listen, we know that we had passed from death to life because we love the brethren, the brothers and sisters. 
He who does not love his brother abides in death. Something's wrong. Something's broken. Just like Betty. Something is terribly wrong. If you can drop out for months at a time and never crosses your mind, gee, I miss my family. I miss my sisters and my brothers in Christ. So why do you need life with a group of believers? Because life seeks out life. And it's one of those great marks that there's been a change in you and in me. Number two, second reason, because Jesus makes himself known to groups in ways you will miss on your own. There are things that God does in a group that that do not happen the same way with individuals. Look at verse 43. It says, then fear came upon every soul. The experience was individual, but it happened in a group. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Why did that fear settle in? What What does that indicate? It indicates that Jesus had made his presence real and they were experiencing the presence of Christ and in the presence of a holy God, there is a holy fear that settles on our heart. Deep respect, deep, deep sense of reverence and awe in the presence of Jesus. And so there are ways you will experience God with a serious group of Christians that will not happen when you're alone. Fear came upon every soul. Jesus wants to reveal himself in ways to you through a group that do not happen when we're by ourselves. There was a time in my life, I mentioned just briefly last week, but there was a time in my life a long time ago when I was on a trip in Southern California. I had, I had been exposed to some some ways of thinking about church like we're talking about this morning. And I was hungry for church like that. I wanted to be part of a church that loved one another like that. I wanted to, I wanted to see this happen, a church where he is the head and he gives direction in life to the body. I wanted that. God opened a door for us to move to South Louisiana. My family and I moved to Lake Charles and we got involved in a church plant there a group of families that have been meeting in homes, and almost right away we begin to experience some difficulties. Now, on paper, we had it all right. I mean, biblically, all the T's were crossed and the I's were dotted. We understood what church was supposed to be, but we were not experiencing life. After several months, and, and we initially grew, but after several months, it was clear to me that something was terribly wrong in, in what we were doing. And we came to a place where we closed it. I had helped start churches, but I never closed one. It's one of the most painful experiences of my life. And because of the nature of what we had been doing, no one was interested in me coming to be their pastor or staff member. And, um, and so we, we landed at First Baptist Church on Lake Charles, Louisiana. There was a pastor there named Emil Turner, who later become, became executive director here in Arkansas of Arkansas Baptist. When Emil and I first met, I didn't like him, he didn't like me. I thought he was a control freak, a dictator, my way or the highway. He thought I was a mystic, impractical. We became best of friends. I can tell you a lot of sweet stories of how God worked through that relationship. 
Let me tell you more significant what happened. When, when we became part of the life of that church, this was a traditional downtown first baptist in the plant. They were just a traditional church, but life was there. There was a supernatural warmth and a heat to that congregation. It was a praying church. I believe, I believe if there's any credit to be given, it was because that had become part of their culture. They were a praying church, a praying congregation. But I began to realize that, that because I began to wonder, do I fit anywhere in this thing called Baptist life? Do I fit? Do I belong here? And, and, and here I found a church that wasn't doing church the way I thought church ought to be done. But there was life in it. The life of Christ. And God spoke to my heart, and this is what I wanted you to hear. Because there's ways he speaks to us through groups that he doesn't speak to us when we're by ourselves. What God showed me was that me, some 25 years ago, was riding off churches faster than God was. And I was wrong. And so it was a change for me to realize that. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, we can answer the question, what is church? Listen carefully. What is church? Jesus said, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, the word church is used three times by Jesus in the Gospels, all three times in Matthew. The first time is in chapter 16 on this rock I will build my church. The second time is here in chapter 18. He's talking about when two Christians are having a problem and they can't work it out. He goes and gets a couple of people to come with him and they still can't work it out. And then it says to go and tell it to the church. And if this person who is in, in conflict with the other Christian, if, if, the, if he will not even hear the church, and so it's used twice. Go tell it to the church, and if he won't listen to the church. And then right after that, it says this, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, how many people do you have to have to have a church? Fifty? A hundred? Two or three? Jesus is not saying they're part of a church. He's saying they are the church. <laughs> they are the church. You mean it's possible, Pastor, that when two or three Christians come together back here in one of these classrooms and they are worshiping, they are encouraging each other, they are holding each other up, they are praying, they are studying God's Word, they are going out to lunch and dinner and spending time together, that, that they are church? Yes! More, more like church then than we are right now when we gather together in just a large group. To underscore all of this, he says, I am there in the midst of them. It's a promise of his presence. So Jesus makes himself known to groups in a way you will miss on your own. There's a third reason that you and I need to do life with a group of believers. Not only because life seeks out life, not only because Jesus moves in groups in ways he doesn't in just individuals, but number three, because Jesus wants you to experience his love through the practical ministry of a group. Listen to verse 44. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all. And here's the key to understanding what's happening. As anyone had need. What's driving all of this? 
individual needs in the group. People had a need, the group responded. People were hurting, the group responded. It wasn't just material needs, it's also spiritual needs, it's also emotional needs. Right now, some of you, we've talked about this before, but some of you really struggle to believe that God loves you. You struggle with love, you struggle with his acceptance, you struggle with really believing and experiencing his forgiveness. So what is his solution? Well, the life of Jesus, another Christian to you. In John 15, 12, he said it this way. This is my commandment. This is something that's non-optional. That you love one another as I have loved you. That you love one another as I have loved you. That's the first one another command, by the way. New Testament's chock full of them. There's probably 40 of them where we are told to do things for one another. It's another reason why I can't be a Christian by myself, because you can't do a one another command just by yourself. So how do you love one another? There's got to be you and at least one other person. And, and so if you're a person who really struggles, you may, you may minister to others. There may be needs. You may show and demonstrate love for them. People are hurting. You may not have any trouble showing care for them. Uh, people need encouragement. You don't have any trouble giving encouragement. Uh, people need to know that someone cares for them and has compassion on them, and you don't have any trouble giving those things because of your belief and your conviction about who God is and what he wants you to do, and you can lean on the Holy Spirit, and he, and he works through you. But you personally, you may be a person who does not very much feel like God loves you. So how is God going to break through to you? How is Jesus going to make his love real to you? It's going to happen when someday you are really needing someone to communicate this to you and some brother is going to walk up to you, some sister is going to walk up to you. And they're going to wrap their arms around your neck. And they're going to say, brother, I love you. Or sister, I love you. And the first time they do that, that age-old skepticism you've lived with all your life may just be right there. But when they've done it about 20 or 25 times, you begin to experience something of the love of God. Let me give you a couple of examples. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. I love these two examples. Uh, these are one another examples. Beware, brethren. Okay, he's talking to us, brethren and sistern. Beware, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So it's possible to be a Christian and not to be walking by faith. It's possible to be a Christian and not be actively trusting God in a given situation, okay? He says, watch out for this. How do you address it? How does it, how, how's that help? Verse 13, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. One of the ways that he wants to grow you as a man of God, grow you as a woman of God, is through other Christians who speak to you and who encourage you and who call out from you the type of life that Jesus is leading you to live. Exhort one another means to encourage, to speak words of encouragement. Let me give you another example. 
And in that one, the person goes from a weak faith to a strong faith. Here's another one, Hebrews 10, verse 24. The writer says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as this manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So he says, starts off and says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. You know what that word is? It means provoke. Now, we provoke each other, but I'm not sure it's to love and good works. I don't know about you, but I get provoked just driving down the road sometimes. Amen. But he, he turns it upside down, doesn't he? We're to provoke each other, but we're to provoke each other love and good works. It's almost like a competition to see who can outdo the other person when it comes to love and good works. We'll talk more about that in a, in a few weeks. And he, and he says, in order for you to do this, I'm paraphrasing, but in order for you to do this, he says, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Exhort one another. Now, is this assembling, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, is it talking about what we're doing in this room right now? A little bit. Because what's described here is interactive. Exhorting one another, it's right now you're getting exhorted this way. But to exhort one another daily, you and I have to be in contact with one another. We have to be knee to knee. We have to be chair to chair. We have to be interacting with one another, hearing one another, communicating with one another. It's talking about a kind of a group that doesn't happen in here, but it does happen in these classrooms and in homes around when today and throughout the week as groups of you come together. This is not even a typical Sunday school class. If all I do is in, the, in the Sunday school class is, is do Bible study the way I'm doing Bible study right now, where we have big church here, little church back there, where I lecture you here and I lecture you back there, that's still not what's happening. We're still not being church the way it's described there. Church happens as you and I stir one another up. And we come together for this purpose of speaking to one another. So that love and good works might result. God has not called us to be independent as Christians. That's hard for us in the West. It's hard for us as Americans to hear that. But God has not called you to be independent. He's called you to be interdependent with other Christians. So why do you need to do life with other Christians? Because life seeks out life. Because Jesus moves in groups in ways he doesn't in individuals. Because Jesus wants to meet your deepest needs through other believers. And the number four... Because six. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. By the way, breaking bread here does not refer to the Lord's Supper. A lot of times you'll read a commentary and Bible scholars may say, that, oh, that's just the Lord's Supper. They're having the Lord's Supper all the time. No. It says here that they were breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food. You see, it was a meal. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. We're going to talk more about that next week. Because that is the church busting down the gates of hell. So the early Christians clearly related to one another in a way that was 
very close, very intimate, very warm. They were together a lot. It sounds like family. They were like family. And God adds to them more people to be part of their family. Unless you think I'm stretching it, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, verse 1. He talks about relationships in the church. How do we describe these relationships? Well, they're relationships like you have in a family. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger as sisters with all purity. That's the kind of relationship we're to have here. We're not supposed to be sniping at each other. Now, that's a dysfunctional family, and they may do that at your house. But here, we're supposed to be a healthy family. When I was a student pastor, Dustin, in the dark ages, a long time ago, there was always all this, this discussions we would do about dating. Now, I don't know what dating means today. Dating back then meant somebody called somebody up to go out and they would have dinner and a movie and go home and that was it, theoretically, dating. And so when Christians in youth groups would date one another, one of the questions that would invariably come up to the the youth pastor would be, how far is too far? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Male Christian, female Christian, they're out on a date. They're in a car by themselves. They've had dinner together. They've gone to a movie together. He's dropping her off. And there's a display of affection. And they're asking the reverend, youth pastor, how far is too far? Can I tell you what I used to tell him? I used to say, that's easy. If you were with your sister in the car, how far is too far? I mean, just imagine she's your sister, or, or, or ladies. Imagine she's your brother. He's your brother. How far would it be too far? And they go. Treat the men as your brothers. Treat the, the younger women as your sisters with all purity, he says. He adds that. He knows what he's talking about. You do too. With all purity. If you wouldn't go there with your sister, you're not going to go there with this girl. Why? Because we're family. You are family. Everyone sitting here that knows Jesus, you're family. And your behavior towards one another, the way we talk about each other, the way we treat each other, should be the way a family does. And it's a beautiful thing. And so one of the reasons you need a group is because Jesus made you to live in a spiritual family. I think if I was coming here today and I'm hearing me for the first time and you're You've not been part of a church, you don't have a church background, or you've been thinking about it for a while. One of the questions you, I hope you're asking yourself is, I would like to be part of a family like that. How do I get in? How do I get into a family like that? Well, you could just come and join the church, shake the pastor's hand, fill a card, get baptized, and go to a Bible study group. And I recommend all those activities. But let me tell you something that's even more important. How do you get in to this family? John chapter 1, verse 12. Here's what the Bible says. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. 
to those who believe in his name. That's it. That's it. As many as received his word, it says they were baptized and the Lord added to them. It's the same, it's the same teaching in John 1.12. He's saying as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, a son of God, a daughter of God. And if you're his son and I'm his son, you're my brother. If you're his daughter and you're sitting next to someone else who's his daughter, you're sisters. 